I don't think we quite appreciate the social nature of the way we research and the way we design. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with landscape architect and urbanist Ed Wall. Ed joins us today to discuss his new book, Contesting Public Spaces. Ed, welcome. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for the invitation. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks for doing this. Um, so your new book um, expresses a concern for spatial justice as streets, squares, and neighborhoods are continuously made and remade through planning processes, political ambitions, and everyday activities, and with a particular focus on London. Um, tell us about the origin story of this book. Like, Where, where did the, the, the notion of doing this book project emerge from, and why um, focusing on kind of spatial justice uh, in the context of contemporary London? So it's a great question, Charles. Uh, there's a number of strands that come together which have resulted in in the book. Uh, back in back in twenty two thousand and eight, I think it was, I did a project for the London Festival of Architecture, looking at the what we were describing as the less formal or informal public spaces in South London, and. Some of the conversations that we had back then with the local planners raised particular questions about the uh, urban development processes that were coming to completely transform the public realm of that part of the city. At the same time, I'd, uh, I'd re-entered academic life and I felt the, the both the urge to do a PhD and to, I think, become better trained as a researcher, as well as, uh, I suppose, exploring some of these questions around public space and rede urban redevelopment. So the, the book is uh, a development of that, what amounted to about eight to 10 years of research and writing. And I think the concerns particularly around spatial justice are really sort of they come in and out all the way through the research through the conversations i had with planners with local historians local residents of the different parts of london that i was uh, studying and the concerns that they raised in both their involvement in what the future of the city was going to be but also some of the uh, acceptances, let's say, that local planners and politicians, uh, both at national and local level, um, had already accepted. So I think th th those really sort of, both from the subtle and more explicit uh, conversations that I had, I think that's where the, the spatial justice uh, lens really came about. 
So as early as uh, 2008, 2009, as you're beginning this work, questions of spatial justice were already kind of foregrounded for you, uh, certainly in the context of London, well well before uh, the, the, our more recent kind of focus in the context of uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, uh, a series of questions of spatial justice uh, across uh, Western Europe and North America. The book focuses on three large-scale redevelopment sites near central London, uh, Paddington Basin, Trafalgar Square, and the Elephant and Castle Market site. And one of the questions I had in, in uh, reading the book, which I found beautifully researched, well-argued, uh, and, and persuasive, um, you know, so much of the attention, the urban attention, uh, the attention of our professions in London over the past decades, the past half century even, have really focused on the East, right, from Canary Wharf through the London Olympics to the East. And, uh, and yet you've identified three sites near the center of London. Why those sites in particular? And is there something about the economic geography of the city that pointed you to those sites? It's uh, it's well researched. I think the areas of East London around the Docklands, around the Olympic site, and I think they fit into a trajectory of urban planning, say development and change in London since the 1980s. Really, we can see back then a, a more free market approach to urban planning in the London Docklands. And this approach was developed, let's say, in the 1990s under the new Labour government to one which there's varying partnerships between public and private organisations, governments, working at a master plan scale. And what I find quite interesting and what I was quite keen to do was not to overprivilege or overly critique one one particular type of private involvement or public emphasis in redeveloping the city, but to look to three different cases. So one is led by the Greater London Authority. So this is the the master plan of central London that includes Trafalgar Square and Parliament Square. One is commercially led by a consortium of private developers out in Paddington Basin. And then the third is a partnership between the local government and a, a larger development group. And I think that what's interesting for me was the, the neighborhood scale in which these master plans were unfolding, which actually resonates with what happened in the Docklands, what happens also in areas like the Olympics as well. One of the claims, and I think one of the central uh, contributions of the book, um, is to develop um, a combination of what I'll describe as spatial sociological research. Um, I mean, what you say is that the the, the book really attempts to bring uh, sociological approaches to what are often considered really architectural concerns, uh, revealing challenges as public spaces are designed, regulated, and lived. And I want to I want to ask you about that and understand, you know, from you you, know, you saying you know, wanting to you know develop your skills as a researcher doing the doctorate. Um, how did you find the relationships between, let's say, the you know, spatial knowledge, you know, your training as a, a designer and the sociological approach that you're hybridizing here? I, I found that the two are much closer than we recognize, I think, from the architectural side. I think that as trained in landscape architecture first, I don't think we quite appreciate the social nature of the way we research and the way we design. 
that we go visit places, we speak with people, we do lots of mappings. We don't often call our methods out in the way that social scientists do, but we do understand, even if just scratching the surface. I think what I enjoyed, and I undertook this research in a department of sociology at the London School of Economics, and that was quite intentional in that I was keen to be exposed to, say, a stronger critique and maybe more rigorous use of research methods than we tend to do within our design schools. And I say tend to because that's not, uh, it's not always the case, but the perspective that my colleagues in anthropology and sociology, my friends who are ethnographers, the perspective that they had on public space was quite different to the way we think about public space and landscape architecture and architecture. I think that a large part of the research from a theoretical perspective, I think, was trying to understand how such different perspectives could be understood together. And part of that is through the methodologies, and part of that, I think, is the way in which we, we get out of our disciplinary positions and uh, recognize the many different ways and forms of publicness that exist in cities like London. You mentioned uh, anthropology, cognitive disciplines like uh, ethnographic research. Um, you know, we see these days, um, you know, a number of people who seem to be engaged in that space between, you know, design and the anthropological or the ethnographic. I, I think of our colleague Gareth Doherty and his work here uh, at the GSD. Do you consider yourself, first of all, so is, is that a fair assessment? Is there something of a moment for that kind of intersection? And were you conscious of it when you made that decision or, or do you find yourself happily amongst a, a cohort of people who find this compelling today? I, I, I was I was aware of it when I started the research, yes. I, I think that my my interest in the say the public life of cities kind of drew me more to the anthropological and ethnographic methods which uh, I used in this research. I was also aware that in a city like London and also, let's say, our landscape context in the UK, it's less embedded in the traditions of environmental environmental and ecological thinking as is in the United States. And my my time spent in the in the US, I think uh, was it made me much more aware and appreciative of the environmental and ecological perspectives. But I think that the context of London required a uh, a different set of, of methods and a different range of references. Um, I think that if I was to undertake the work now, the the ecological would, would come in with, uh, it'd have greater presence within the work due to, I suppose, increased concerns around, around climate crisis and uh, the sort of ecological demands that are put on urban development and put on the city. But I think that at this stage back in 20, 2010, and with, with these particular sites, it seemed to make sense, the, the, more, the, more, the more social perspective. Did you find that these three sites were already um, feeling the pressure of climate change? Was there discourse around 
climate or environmental concerns more broadly in the redevelopment of these three sites, or were they relatively insulated from those conversations? They they were they were relatively insulated, to be honest, Charles. And I think that the urban development landscape here in London, I think, is still quite insulated from it. We we haven't been exposed to the events and traumas that cities in North America have uh, in the last 10 or 20 years. We don't have hurricane seasons. We don't have the the degree of damage um, that is caused by extreme weather events in the United States. So the, the discourse, while I think at a political level is quite present, it's, it's, it doesn't reach the ground in the sa- to the same degree. The the area in which environmental concerns were, were raised is that in one of the cases in Elfin Castle in South London, the local resistance to the development was marked by concerns raised about the mature trees in that part of London. And the attempt to uh, attempt to preserve the trees, save the lives of the trees was one of the ways in which the local community attempted to push back against the uh, the momentum of the master plan that had been proposed. So if the redevelopment of these three sites over the past decades wasn't directly shaped by questions of climate, I know that um, uh, through through my passing experience, the, the UK has experienced very interesting weather, <laughs> certainly uh, stranger and stranger summers. Uh, but uh, as you describe, a series of political crises associated with capital, but also broader, you know, kind of political economy questions. Um, in your introductory essay uh, in the book, Ed, you, you write that London's public spaces embody a constant reworking of relations between economic agendas, government departments, public agencies, competing businesses, daily routines, and its urban fabric, uh, frequently mediated through master plans for redevelopment. Um, You mentioned the development of the Greater London Authority in 2000 to facilitate neighborhood scale transformations. And I was struck by, uh, in your account, uh, the role of the master plan, you know, um, uh, you know, you explore what you describe as conflicting accounts of how these public spaces have been made and remade. Um, and I'm curious to know more about why the master plan. You've said something about the three cases bringing different levels of government, different institutional organizational structures. So comparative, contrasting, but um, the persistence of the master plan. How? What are we to make of that? We're now two decades after the exhaustion of the master plan. Skepticism about fixity, right, in favor of open-endedness and flexibility. But now the master plan seems to have returned. Is that a fair reading? It's a it's a very fair reading, Charles. I think that the master plan has either returned or it never left. I think that within our within our more academic debates and critiques, we have have long discussed the the death and the problematic nature of the master plan. I think we can look back to in even in London, we look back to the nineteen sixties and seventies with some great critiques of so top-down approaches to the city. The use of the master plan in its contemporary context, I say contemporary because this is still going on, uh, and it's maybe uh, even more accentuated now than it was when I was undertaking this research. The master plan is 
a useful scale for urban developers and local government to collaborate. Local government in cities like London, they are they have very limited resources, but they have been, they still are to a, to a certain degree, they're quite rich in land assets. They own vacant areas of land, they own land on which their council housing, what we call over here council housing, so their social housing sits, and the opportunity to redevelop that land allows them to release the value of the land. It allows the commercial developers to make significant profits. And it then allows, through that relationship, the production of or the uh, the remaking of some of the public goods of the city. And that might be playgrounds, it might be swimming pools, it might be local local schools. But some of the profits that are generated through these processes, they're fed back into uh, the fed back into the master plan. And this is the way in which most local government, uh, local boroughs, local governments in London operates. So the master plan in this sense becomes uh, the the scale in which existing council housing exists and the way in which that could be knocked down and rebuilt as more commercially focused entities. I mean, you do account in um, at least one of the three cases, uh, the kind of demolition of you know council housing, the kind of giving over of social housing in favor of uh, private development. Um, you know, given you know the focus of of your work in and around London, um, you know uh, the focus of our conversations here about the future of the American city. I mean, some of our listeners may be wondering, wait, you know, Walt, I missed the frame here. You know, Walt's based in London. Um, I was struck by the symmetry in many cases between what you describe the conditions for this master planning practice and the conditions that we discuss in the context of the American city. And I'll just enumerate a few points. And please, you know, correct me if I'm misreading you before I get this wrong. So, you describe um, what's characterized as uneven power relations between state, private capital, and local citizenry. That seems clear. Uh, what I read into is a lack of really democratic structures or a kind of lack of clarity or faith in those processes for balancing or mediating those relationships. Um, we can talk about the state of you know community consultation uh, and input processes on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, uh, you describe, and we certainly have seen, the precarity of existing populations, uh, vulnerable to removal, vulnerable to gentrification, and a whole series of other pressures. Um, and then Continuing from there, increasingly what I would describe as generic, I'm not sure that you use that term, but an increasingly kind of generic forms of retail and commercial development, which seem to push out other forms. You know, in the Elephant and Castle Market, you tell the story of this extraordinarily deep historic marketplace of a variety of classes mixing and trading and engaging in, in all sorts of kinds of commercial and retail activity, and that we see increasingly a kind of generic retail or generic commercial development displacing that kind of uh, what you call everyday urban life. And then, you know, ultimately, these things can contribute to the erasure of the, the social relations and the spatial conditions for normative everyday life. I was struck by that account, the clarity of it. Clearly, this is well argued, well researched over many, many years. But I'm also struck by the extent to which we seem to share those challenges in the American city. Um, and I, I wonder if, that, first of all, is that a fair account of those of points that I've read from your 
book and to what extent might we be able to discuss their um, increasing availability, not just in London or New York, but other cities? It's absolutely a fair account, Charles. I think that the, the these are these are the conditions which I recognise through the research and which have been documented by you know, many many colleagues and uh, uh, researchers who are looking at British cities. I think that I I draw quite closely in some of the contextualising uh, that I do in the work. I draw quite closely on the experiences of North American cities, particularly around, I see the transformation and privatization of their public realm through redevelopment processes, through gentrification, but also uh, examples such as Barcelona, which the agendas that led to this neighborhood scale master planning were informed by the, the Olympic sort of informed uh, remaking of Barcelona back in the 80s and 90s, which many European cities looked to as a model for how they could uh, how they could move forward and reimage themselves. But I think that the the relationship with the North American city, I think, is fascinating. I mean, I after training in landscape architecture, I. I trained in urban design in New York um, at City College and having individuals such as Marshall Berman join our classes, uh, you know, people whose writing document the destruction of neighborhoods with some very different contexts and different methods, but very similar results is quite striking when we, we look decades later and the upheaval on communities and the distress caused by urban design and regeneration continues to happen. And I think this is, say, one of the things that struck me moving to London, uh, realizing that the the mode of urban design in London wasn't uh, wasn't what I'd expected. In the acknowledgments, in fact, you uh, acknowledge an indebtedness to Michael Sorkin, among other people, in your experience in New York. Um, you know, in this space, in the, the podcast series, we had a conversation with uh, author and housing advocate uh, Samuel Stein, whose book Capital City, I think, captures much of this in terms of the political economy in New York in the past decades. Um, you know, Sam Stein's argument uh, was that irrespective of the particular mayor's administration, irrespective of their, you know, party affiliation, Republican to Democrat, um, moderate mainstream, you know, kind of business type in Bloomberg through um, uh, progressive so-called Democrat um, in de Blasio, he found that irrespective of administration, irrespective of party, that the development of kind of larger scale projects and especially housing projects in New York tended to continue apace, that there was sort of very little correlation between the development of housing in a place like New York in recent decades and the political affiliation or even the platform on which political leadership ran. Is that something that you see um, in the UK or in London as well? Absolutely, Charles. The, the the different leadership of the mayor of London, uh, the, the mayor is the figurehead and leader of the Greater London Authority that was established in the late nineties, um, the late nineteen nineties. The the mayor has changed a number of times, both since that time and through the period of the research and the the way in which development has unfolded has largely stayed the same. 
what's interesting is that back in uh, when the Greater London Authority was established, the, the the first mayor of London was Ken Livingstone, who's one of the more left-leaning politicians that we have had in the UK. But he recognised that with the limited resources that he was afforded by the central government, that there were certain compromises that he was both able to make and willing to make in relation to the amount of urban development. And I think that that coming under a more left-leaning uh, mayoral um, candidate I think it's almost legitimized subsequent mayors, whether that's been Boris Johnson or our current mayor, Sadiq Khan. The um the the power that mayors have in in London is less and the resources are less than let's say the mayor of New York City. Um, but they do have responsibility for planning. And they uh, I think they have all recognized that. This is a way in which they are able to, as cities like Barcelona have, and I think many North American cities, they recognize that through planning, they can re-image the city and compete with other urban centers. I think that there, there, are, there is a, a large amount of re-imaging at that political level that is desired, and urban redevelopment is one of the ways in which they are able to achieve it. You mentioned competition, uh, and certainly in in the two cities we're discussing, you know, New York and and London, over the past uh, decades, uh, may, maybe almost a half century now, uh, we see increasingly this kind of rhetoric around the notion of global city competing for global talent, and the idea that these are both two, you know, significant financial hubs, uh, and that they need to maintain their kind of first starter or first mover advantages, let's say, um, and, and that's a, one way of accounting. This is one of the uh, kind of conversations that we had with. Samuel Stein, and I see this as we think about you know the Docklands and Canary Wharf or other arguments, or the development of the New York proposal for the Olympics or the the successful London Olympic bid. These kinds of projects. Um, um, I, I want to ask about um, your experience on these three cases and in London more generally, Ed, um, relative to just the ability to build things. Uh, this is a conversation that's been on our minds for some time now. It's uh, present in um, the work of journalists and public intellectuals across a wide array of different points of view. I think of the work of Ezra Klein in the New York Times uh, and his podcast or uh, Derek Thompson. There's a whole sector of the kind of public intellectual, let's say, that are concerned with our inability, certainly in the United States, to build things today. Uh, it's very, very difficult by every measure. We have a legal system and a series of political economies in which it's very easy to stop things. And, and many of these checks and balances have been placed uh, really for all the right reasons, right? Because of the failures of modernist top-down planning, the ability for citizens and communities to resist. So the idea of citizen consultation, input, the idea of our legal system, which we've inherited uh, from the British legal system in which anyone has a right to sue, to intervene, to stop almost any process, and then further due diligence. So um, in, in, in many ways, you know, uh, you know, Klein argues, among others, 
um, that we have a culture here which is really quite litigious and in which, you know, because a huge percentage of, you know, elected and appointed uh, officials and leaders are, are themselves lawyers, we've become much better at stopping things. Uh, and I wonder to what extent is, is that a concern that you see in London is are, are people able to build things? I mean, these are three major projects that are still ongoing. Things are getting built. Um, is that a, a consideration or something that we might discuss between uh, London and, and the American city? I think that's maybe where, where where the comparison stops quite abruptly, Charles. Uh, at at the moment, I think that the ability to to build things in London is accelerating. I think that we don't have the mechanisms, or the we are not employing the mechanisms uh, effectively to be able to be able to stop some of the development that happens. And the master planning process itself seems to facilitate a ramping up of building rather than one which is slowing down. So I mentioned within the book, so the piecemeal nature of the master plan, both physically but also through time. And this the concern for time within the master planning process, certainly within the more commercial developments, seems to allow the developers to come back to the table with local go local government and renegotiate the terms of the master plan. And this usually results in increasing density, results in changing the land use to um, generate more profit. And so that they rarely come back and find more public space or, you know, less FAR. They, they, they tend not to. <laughs> they tend not to uh, come back with that request, Charles. They, so, so, we're, so we're seeing, I think, quite interestingly, uh, a, a greater awareness, let's say, of the need to consult, a greater awareness of even environmental and climatic concerns, but also greater resources uh that are available to push many of these redevelopment projects forward. I think what's also quite interesting, and this is anecdotally uh, speaking with friends and former students working in many of these industries, the, uh, the resources available to actually build projects has also gone up. So the quality of materials and the, uh, the generosity of the, these new pseudo public realms is greater than what we would have seen 10, 20 years ago as individual master plans compete with each other across the city. And this we see in the Battersea Power Station and Nine Elms development, which is very close to where I am right now, all the way out to Greenwich Peninsula. And I think that th th this also, we see this sort of in this competition inside the city for attention. Is that ability to realize projects across scales, is that something that extends to the, the, the public sector as well? Uh, do you see the realization of genuinely kind of public infrastructure, social housing, transportation, or or modes that keep pace? Or, or, or is it, you know, essentially a kind of privately owned public realm that's delivered through these projects? I think through the projects that we're describing uh, here, it's... it's any new public space through these projects is privately informed, owned, managed in some way. I think the exceptions to this, or at least the 
the closest to an exception we might find are some of the more historic public spaces like Trafalgar Square or Parliament Square, which are part of this historic grain of the city, but have also still been uh, redeveloped through some of the early work of the Greater London Authority. So under the mayor, Ken Livingston, who I described, there were a series of projects that were led by the Greater London Authority. They were implemented by local government and there were resources available to do that. This is at a time when you had a Labour government and also a left-leaning Greater London Authority uh, where investment in the public part of the city was greater. Since 2008, that has pretty much stopped. And we're, we're really only looking at uh we're we're look we're looking at projects that are are produced or facilitated with private money either c coming in some way um into producing these projects whether it's directly through the the master planning or through what we call section 106 agreements which is a handover of a certain amount of cash to produce public goods somewhere else I mean, we're familiar and have um, had conversations in this space about the American phenomenon of um, privately owned public spaces. You think of uh, the Occupy movement beginning in Zuccotti Park and Lower Manhattan and the notion of it being cleared because it was ultimately something that could constrain free speech. Do, do you see or have you encountered in your work um, anxieties, concerns around the freedom of expression, whether it be political speech or other forms of expression by virtue of that uh, privatization of these new public realms? Yes, absolutely, Charles. And in every case that I looked at as part of this research, but also uh, other research I've done in London, the the restrictions put on place on free speech, on particular public actions, uh, are are quite explicit, and that ranges from the the, the fully privately led redevelopments all the way through to some of these historic centers of what we what we at least tell ourselves in the UK are centers of democracy, places like Trafalgar Square, where you can gather and form public opinion and protest. When Trafalgar Square was redesigned, a new set of rules was written to what was permitted to occur within that space. So we we see immediately the kind of the 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 background uh, the background rules rewritten, which are not not as explicit when we look at just the physical architectural redesign of the public space. I must say, I was, um, you know, um, happily surprised, but surprised nonetheless to, to see Trafalgar appear as one of these three cases. You know, the other, you know, a, a kind of down at heel everyday market that has great kind of social life, you know, a, a, a waterfront space, you know, and and in that litany, the idea of the the traditional or the preserved, you know, kind of monumental square, I thought was a very interesting choice. Um I think you know, increasingly what we see is uh, anxiety or concern around the preservation, the conservation of so much 
built form. I know, you know, in our culture, uh, so much of our uh, American city has been, you know, downzoned or restricted essentially by elites, both at the scale of preservation, but also at the scale of individual, you know, homeowners associations or individual, you know, uh, political leadership saying, well, no, we don't want to add more housing here. And often that produces a kind of displacement where the the transit, you know, doesn't get more housing. The place that's set up for a certain level of urbanity or a certain level of density doesn't get more dense. I'm here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, my home, uh, in a context where effectively the city decided several decades ago that it was done. <laughs> and that produces, of course, great, you know, increase in house value and gentrification and pressures to push existing populations elsewhere. So I wonder to what extent is, of course, London is historically one of those places that has been described or defined find in, in large part by its preservation of its own built fabric. Um, and I wonder if you have thoughts about that. On the one hand, is that an issue in the topics that you deal with? Certainly in Trafalgar, it seems to be. And are there tendencies there or things that we could um, think about changing that are, that are that are on the ground now? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting comparison, Charles. The case of Trafalgar Square, absolutely conservation is, is a key concern. I think that say some of the intelligence of the landscape architects, engineers and architects involved in its redesign was to navigate some of those concerns for conservation. I think that the uh, the resistance to that the densification of the city and the building of new housing, um, as you described, coming from landowners also exists in places like London. And we can see the power of property uh, being expressed quite explicitly in neighborhoods where individual landowners have influence. I think what we're looking at in the Paddington uh, Basin and also the Alphanet Castle case is that both of these are sites either on which social housing is being demolished, where the, the, the landowner is the, is the state and the individual tenants, the citizens of the city are being displaced, um, or in, in Paddington Basin, the area is surrounded by more low-cost housing, where any existing landowners are probably quite happy for the transformation of what was for a formerly industrial area. I think that the, uh, the interest in, let's say, intensification is primarily coming from the uh, from local go local government and the developers who have interest in both increasing the population of particular parts of the city, but also the opportunities to profit from that rebuilding. I, I am interested in uh, another contrast. You said we kind of reached the end of the kind of symmetries, you know, uh, New York, London. Another thing that I think, you know, for me is a, is a question. Um, on this side of the Atlantic, I think we we operate in a place where, as I say, it's it's increasingly difficult for us to think about um, collective outcomes. It's very difficult in the political economy and in the in the forms of development that we experience today in many American cities, even to consider, you know, much much less have metrics for or evaluations or measures of success in terms of the collective outcome of decisions. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that is for us is that in our context, in so many places, certainly in New York City, in my experience. 
the vast majority of kind of major urban redevelopment projects uh, don't go through normative or as of right uh, processes. They, they, they tend to be thought of as exceptions, right? You mentioned the Olympics in Barcelona. Of course, New York had its own failed Olympic bid. Uh, but if you think about um, the American city in that context and the idea of every project becoming or every major large scale redevelopment becoming a kind of negotiation between the state and its actors, the city, the director of planning, and the development interest and, and their architects. Um, I mean, that for me, on the one hand, sounds a little bit like what you're describing with different nodes in contemporary London being redeveloped by competing development interests. But it strikes me that what you said about the, 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 the London Authority and its development in the late 90s, um, it strikes me that there's been a kind of maybe a kind of normalization of process in London. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I, th I think it's certainly fair on the part of the decision makers, Charles. So the local planners, the politicians, uh, the developers who I spoke to who are largely making decisions about these neighborhoods, they have accepted and made peace with largely the the role that they play and the consequences that this has on individuals' private lives and public lives. So the acceptance of social cleansing, for me, I found quite shocking from a senior planner in government when describing the unfolding master plan, which they had um, initiated back in the 1990s. And I think this this is, uh, I suppose, something that raises the question of who comes to represent the citizens or represent the public. If we, we shouldn't expect... I don't think our commercial developers to have the concerns of the public um, at the front of their minds, but we do tend to expect our local government, uh, central government officials, as well as politicians to do that. And if that isn't the case, then the I think we do have to ask ourselves, are there additional structures within government that need to be realized to represent our public concerns and particularly public concerns at smaller scales at the scale of the business and of the individual and of the family and the impact that many of these urban developments are having on them i'm struck uh i mean first of all you know that I can't I can't recall in recent memory of you know an urban term of art more charged than social cleansing I mean, it's just it just it's it, it shuddered me. Um, I'm taking it from the context and your remarks, but I want to draw you out on this. So this officially you were speaking to was describing this in the context of class um, or, or in other terms. I mean, we know, at least in our culture, of course, you know, class is very directly an index of race. It's very directly an index of social mobility and, and, and identity questions. And so I wonder if you, if you could say more about the role of social cleansing as an instrument of the kind of state planning apparatus. So I think I mean I, I could give you three three examples, one in each of the different master plans, Charles. I mean, the the one where social cleansing was described by the senior planner in the city of Westminster. Uh, in, in this situation, it was related to homeless people. Uh, there were homeless people who lived on the site in which the master plan was unfolding, who were um, evicted by the local authority to make way for the commercial developer. There were also, as a result of the master plan being built, there was gentrification of the surrounding neighborhoods um, through 
partly through the work of the Business Improvement District, um, which resulted in the closing down of homeless hostels, the moving on of sex workers. And this was largely, this was seen as a benefit by the planners, and it was very much accepted as the way in which the city worked. We then have in the Elephant Castle case in South London, we have the premise for the master planning process that began in the early 2000s. The premise was that, and I was told this anecdotally by two different sources, um, what one was through a, a planner who worked within local government, I was told that there were currently 80% of the population were in social housing and 20% were property owners. And the local government and councillors wished, wished to flip that to 80% property owners and 20% market rate. And this, some, some of this aspiration came out in, in documents that were poorly redacted. And this also for me points to a level of social cleansing, which is even given percentages and numbers. Um, in the third case in Trafalgar Square, there was, it's, it's a much more local case, there was a an individual who for generations or through his uh, family, through generations, had sold bird seed on Trafalgar Square. And he was removed from the space through the master planning and redesign process. Uh, in the end, he was bought out uh, through a, through gaining compensation, but uh, the, the the rules of the space changed and, and he was removed. In all instances, this is accepted by local governments. It seems to be accepted also by many of the, uh, the consultant team who are part of this process. They're, 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 the re-imaging is a, a positive result and the negative consequences are accepted as part of the process. Ed, what would you say to those skeptics or maybe critics of yours um, that would argue that um, the very qualities of everyday London life that you valorize uh, were themselves housed in parts of the city that resulted from the development through private capital that displaced previous modes of occupation? Are, you know, what, what would you say to those that might argue skeptically that, you know, aren't these sites simply young? Are they immature? Aren't these cities like London constantly in a process of rebuilding themselves and we simply need more time? I, th I think that time is an important part of master planning. We do see over time the change of many of the, the physical forms and also the social dynamics. I think what we, the, the problem I see is the scale in which these mass plans unfold and the control that is expressed through the landowners, the developers, the local government is, re is restricting and reducing the amount of contribution that individuals and smaller scale community groups or businesses are able to have. And I think the in in the past there was a more fragmented and london has quite a famous fragmented uh, structure and arrangement of property ownership even if in large area in some areas there are significant land holdings such as in the great estates but 
land ownership has been quite fragmented. As it becomes more consolidated, we are seeing less and less of this smaller scale incremental change and in occupation, um, use and reuse. And then that for me, the this let's say way of me remaking the city also has such a strong impact on the public components, life, infrastructure of the city. And if this was purely a commercial, private property relation, it is one thing. But when it comes to impact, the way in which individuals are able to engage collectively, share space, share their lives, then there are greater concerns that are raised. No doubt it's well it's well put. Um, I, I want to ask you about the um, you know the the context in which um, that that scale becomes disconnected. You, you've described a political economy which seems to be you know highly functioning but disconnected from local considerations and, and local um, spatial considerations in particular. Um, could you imagine a remedy to the situation? What, what, what if you were, you know, uh, invited to make a proposition? What, what might you propose by way of a, a series of uh, responses to this condition? On the one hand, it strikes me that the the, the perceived successes of large scale projects, whether they be the Docklands or the Olympics or whatever, have uh, fueled a, a consolidation of a master planning process under the Greater Lanoon Authority that seems to be now operational, but it's producing these social conditions that you describe, uh, many of which are really quite uh, quite uh, jarring and certainly not productive to the kind of democratic social life of cities that you're uh, valorizing. So if you were to make a proposition or a series of propositions, what might we do uh, going forward to remedy that kind of disconnection between the political economy and the scale of neighborhood development? I, th I think I think that the the most important thing in a city like London, I have to say, London is a extraordinary place to to live and to work, and I think that the way in which it changes and continues to change is fascinating. But I do think that the transparency in which many of the decisions are made needs to be greater. I think that the way in which negotiations unfold. The conversations that are currently hugely opaque need to be uh, accessible to individual citizens, particularly those whose lives are most impacted. I think, in addition to that, and so I, I, I make a, I make three particular, let's say, propositions within the epilogue of the book. Uh, transparency being one. The other is trying to find mechanisms that can facilitate greater inclusion. And I think that the coming together of the sociological and what I call architectural or spatial perspectives of public space for me through this research, they've come to emphasize the constant making and remaking of public space, whether that is physically through design projects and master planning, and whether that's socially the way in which we come together and occupy and form publics. And I think this continual making and remaking, it can provide opportunities for greater inclusion if the mechanisms are in place to do that. And one of the mechanisms I've advocated is some type of regulatory body for our public spaces. If we look at in the, in the United Kingdom, we have 
regulation of our privatized water companies. We have regulation of our private energy companies. We have regulation of the media. But the places in which we value so highly, such as our parks and our streets and our squares, the doorsteps, the place where we meet our friends, the football fields in which we go play, um, they have very limited protections. And I think if there was some form of independent regulation, we could begin to accept some of the more privately owned public spaces that have existed for a long time in cities like London, but we would know that they were being regulated for the public interest. And I think at the moment, the suspicion is, and to be honest, the evidence is that they're generally not. Ed Wall, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.